Hey everybody and welcome to the podcast No Root No Fruit, a history of folk roots and Americana music one record at a time. I'm your host Matt Watroba. Each episode will explore an iconic and inspirational recording from the genre and then feature an interview with someone who was moved to talk about it. If you enjoy this kind of thing, please check out the website, norootnofruit.com. Once there, you can read the transcripts for each episode, link to the recordings featured on that episode, and, of course, donate to keep these episodes coming. The Anthology of American Folk Music was released by Folkways Records in 1952. It was a three-album set comprised of recordings made by a variety of artists from 1926 to 1933. All of the tracks were gleaned from a single 78 RPM record collection and were divided into three categories, ballads, social music, and songs. Here are a few folks talking about the impact of the recording throughout the decades, but especially at the beginning of what was to become known as the folk music revival. These interviews were collected in a documentary put out by Folkways in celebration of the 1997 reissue of the anthology on six compact discs. In order, you'll hear the voices of music historian and author Grail Marcus, musician Roger McGuinn, musician Dave Van Ronk, author and roots music expert Robert Cantwell, and musician Mike Seeger. There are hundreds and thousands of people who've been affected by it, who've been influenced by it, who may never have heard of it, and may never even have heard any of the recordings collected on it. But it simply seeps in as a set of references, Mm -hmm. cues, and gestures. Someone might have heard two verses of the cuckoo. Oh, the cuckoo is a pretty bird. She wobbles as she flies. She never hollers cuckoo till the fourth day July. Someone might have heard a little bit of somebody imitating, somebody imitating, somebody imitating the Reverend J.M. Gates. Join in the song of sweet little call, there's a round it's wrong. I wasn't uh, exposed to the Harry Smith anthology back in the 50s. I, I got all my stuff secondhand from people who had heard it, I guess. You know, like um, Dave Van Ronk. I'd, I'd go down to the gaslight and hear Dave Van Ronk doing these songs. I thought he, he invented them. I had a copy of it of my own by 1954, 55. And, uh, and by that time, I probably knew every song on it. The first tune from the anthology I heard was Train on the Island. Such a uh, 
thrilling and, and uh, unfathomable, um, improbable uh, piece, of, piece of music. That's true, I think, of, uh, of all the music on the anthology. It, it, it all has a, a kind of, um, of uh, mystery and, and novelty that it, that it simply doesn't lose. When you go from Train on the Island, say, to a goofy cowboy song, you know, and go from this goofy cowboy song to Henry Thomas singing Fishing Blues, that, that, that for me is a, yeah, yeah, why not say it? It's a transcendent moment. Put on the skillet, let my Mama gonna cook them in the short dress. Said you've been fishing all the time. I'm gonna fish it too. I bet you life, loving wife, get more fishing you. And if it's bite, got good faith. Here's a little something I've been like to say. And if it's bite, got good faith. I'm gonna fish it. Yes, I'm gonna fish it. I'm gonna fish it too. It really intrigued me because of the booklet and all that Harry Smith knew and wondered where this, where this guy was from. In order to show you how this stunning collection of American folk music came to be, I need to first introduce you to a small cast of characters. And I do mean characters. Moses Ash was born in Warsaw, Poland in 1905. As a young boy, he left Warsaw for Paris and then the U.S. and started working as a recording engineer. After a failed attempt at producing and selling records, Moe emerged from bankruptcy in 1948 with the help of his secretary, Marion Disler. Together they founded Folkways Records. The label specialized in producing recordings primarily for schools and libraries. In addition to music, they documented sounds of all kinds. One of the founding principles of the company was that every title would stay in print forever. That was one of the conditions when the Smithsonian acquired the collection in 1986. Closely related to the leopard frog and with a similar but still distinctive voice is a Florida gopher frog, Rana Capito. Its snore-like call is heard here in chorus with a barking tree frog and the pinewoods tree frog. That's right. If you needed an album of frog sounds, Mo was your man. Well, in order to paint this picture properly, I need help. And who better to ask than one of the guys who took charge of Folkways Records when it was acquired by Smithsonian back in 86, soon after the death of Moses Ash. Meet Jeff Place. Well, Folkways Records, and actually was called Folkways Records and Service Corporation. Because he, he, he actually sold most of his records to libraries and schools. Record stores, other than a few, didn't have a lot of them. It, you know, all the thousands of titles, they might have had a, a couple titles, but that's it. But it started in 1948. And it was interesting in that it happened right at, at the, the changeover from the 78 era to the LP and 45 era. Mo Ash put out almost 2,200 albums over the next 40 years of music from all over the world, frogs, people reading plays, Woody Guthrie, Lead Belly, Ella Jenkins, you name it. Uh, put out the equivalent of a record a week. If you'll gather round me children, a story I will tell. Pretty boy Floyd and outlaw, Oklahoma knew him well. 
It was in the town of Shawnee. It was Saturday afternoon. His wife beside him in his wagon. As into town they rode. So this went on for till 1986 when Mo died, and then. The Smithsonian, my old boss and mentor, Ralph Rensler, basically had done some work for Folkways and Liner Notes, and he was the undersecretary of the Smithsonian at that time. He got the idea to negotiate with Ash to bring the collection to the Smithsonian, which at that point, hard to imagine in this day and age, but the Smithsonian didn't really have sound archives. They didn't have archives of like people, political speeches, you know, or like animal noises, anything like that. They kind of let the Library of Congress do that. So having a sound collection was kind of a breaking new ground, I guess, at the Smithsonian. So end of 87, they hired Anthony Seeger, Pete Seeger's nephew and myself to be the two people that kind of take it over. And then we turned out, we started a, a new label called Smithsonian Folkways in the summer of 88 to sort of carry on the legacy of the kinds of things that, fo- that Folkways had done, which is pretty much anything. <laughs> other than polka and opera. And I kind of walked into a room full of boxes stacked to the ceiling everywhere, which is everything that came down from Ash's office in New York and had to make some sort of sense of it. And alas, he wasn't around anymore to ask about. So I had to kind of spend a bunch of years figuring things out, migrating all the audio off old formats onto new formats. Uh, And by doing that, I kind of was always listening to something every day, all day, all year, and kind of built up a knowledge of what all the stuff was that was in that room. Every Folkways recording came with extensive liner notes, often in the form of a separate booklet. Since Mo was so quick to put these things out, I often wondered just how accurate those notes were. Well, Mo Ash with his liner notes, um, he actually go out and solicit the, the compiler. And so the notes were, were as good as the compiler. I mean, when we took it on, my colleague, Tony Seeger, actually went out and asked scholars about, are these notes good, you know? world music titles is this correct and found as a lot of stuff was really wrong so we you know we've tried to fix a lot of that over the years an anthropologist would write mo or talk to him at a conference a science conference and say i need uh 30 records for my class of, of uh sounds of dolphins you know can you put out a record he said well send me a tape and i'll pay you 100 bucks and i'll give you like your 30 records and then he'd make 60 and have 30 around in the warehouse for the next 20 years Well, Moses Ash, you know, he, he thought to use the, uh, you know, the new, the oncoming new LP format, long playing format. It was perfect for him for anthologizing things and creating these anthologies to put in schools and whatnot. So the first thing he stumbled on was a, a jazz scholar who did a lot of work for him named Frederick Ramsey Jr., who actually had recorded Lead Belly's last sessions. He did a lot of stuff. But he got Ramsey to put together an 11 LP set of the history of jazz from his 78 collection. And that, that was a, went into a lot of schools. And that, so Mo kind of got, got into that and realized that was a success. And Harry Smith, who was always wanting for money, 
<laughs> he didn't have, he was crashing on people. I think he slept on Ginsburg's couch for a few years. Kate would come around and sell, was selling off some of his 78s to Mo, because Mo, a lot of the international things and other things that Mo ended up using on records later. And one time Mo just decided, well, hey, you know, the jazz thing worked. Why don't you create a folk music anthology for me out of your records? Meet character number two, Harry Smith. Smith was born in the Pacific Northwest in 1923, but moved to New York City in 1950 to work on an experimental film with help from a Guggenheim grant. He was also known as a lot of things. Hoarder, mystic, bohemian, collector. Oh, he was a collector. He collected paper airplanes, Ukrainian Easter eggs, seminal textile string figures, and lucky for all of us music lovers, 78 RPM recordings. When he ran out of grant money, he brought what he thought of as the best of his record collection to Folkways and Moses Ash and hoped to make a deal. Instead, he was offered a job. The job was to anthologize these recordings using the new long-playing format. Peter Bartok, the son of the famed composer Bela, was the audio engineer. Well, back to Jeff Place at Smithsonian Folkways. In 1952, they transferred all these 78s on reel-to-reel tapes. And then Harry went to work and made this really crazy little booklet describing the songs. You put them all in order, I guess... The first four songs are all child ballads, uh, old Scottish child ballads, in the numeric order they were. Get down, get down, little in really, and stay all night with me. The very best lodging I can afford will be far better than this. From the soul, soul sea, and it's all for the love of thee. Oh, crazy, oh, silly, can't you plainly see? That's nothing but a cabot head that's a grandma sent to me. I've traveled this world over million times or more. How on a cabot head I've never seen before. The anthology of American folk music was not a big seller when it was released in 1952, but then either was most of the stuff Folkways recorded and distributed. The anthology was always being rediscovered in a sort of shroud of mystery. Moses Ash never sold that many of anything, you know. I mean, if he sold 500 copies or something, you know, that was a big seller, you know. What I found out when I was doing all the research back in the 90s on the anthology and writing the book that, you know, kind of went inside of it was that uh, there were, were people that I called the gatekeepers. They were like the collectors, the people who were really into it, who had the anthology. They would, uh, you know, start playing and 
playing it for other people and they started covering those songs, people like Dave Van Rock. So I would be talking to somebody who was fairly well known, a folk singer from that era, and, and they never heard of the anthology. They said, Oh, I got that from Dave Van Rock or, you know, I got that from, you know, whomever, you know, somebody. And I know that there was a story about Jerry Garcia who came to the office one time was talking about how they used to sneak in the, in the, one of the, the neighbor's apartment in like California, somebody who had the anthology during the day and listened to it. <laughs> the one person had a copy. <laughs> I wish to the Lord I'd never been born or died when I was young before I'd seen your two brown eyes heard your lying tongue love heard your lying tongue I truly understand you love another man and your heart shall no longer be mine. Well, you know, back if you were like in 1949 or something and you were a folk music fan, the chances are you'd be listening to Richard Dyer Bennett or Burl Ives or Maria Miranda or the, the kind of uptown, arranged kind of versions of folk music. Well, here's an attempt to illustrate what Jeff is referring to. This clip will start with the more uptown sound of Richard Dyer Bennett and then end with Clarence Ashley same verse of the same song. Ashley's version is on the anthology. These recordings were released within just a few years of each other. Oh, I could have married the king's daughter dear, and she would have married me. But I have refused the crown of gold, and it's all for the sake of thee. If you could have married the king's daughter, dear, I'm sure you are to blame. For I am married to the house carpenter, and he is a fine young man. That's I could have married the king's daughter, dear. I'm sure she'd have married me. But I've forsaken her crowns of gold, and it's all for the love of thee. Now will you forsaken your house, carpenter, and go along with me. I'll take you where the grass grows green on the banks of the deep blue sea. And what Perry did is found all these old you know, just real traditional community type bands, people who like played at their local firehouse and then happened to go in and record a couple songs for RCA or something in the 20s, you know, and all these people had kind of fallen off the face of the earth. And by putting this out, it, you know, it became the, the song bag that so many people, I mean, there's all sorts of songs on that record that we know really well now that probably we wouldn't if they hadn't come out on that record, you know, but they were picked up by everybody else. Oh, the cuckoo is a pretty bird. She wobbles as she flies. She never hollers cuckoo till the fourth day, July. The one thing that kind of was a, a sort of interesting about the anthology, you know, was that these songs came out between 1926 and 1934. Harry's reissue happened after World War II, which had changed a lot of things. A lot of records have been melted down for the war effort, and a lot of these 78s were pretty obscure. People didn't have access to this music. So it came out of the blue again then, and uh, during the folk revival, people were looking for content, but there also was a, a huge collection out there of people 
who were like serious 78 collectors and they were really interested in you know they they went back and they were trying to find out what what happened to this artist you know you know what happened to mississippi john hurt what happened to some of these things and they all a lot of them end up just hitting the road and going south and so you're talking about 1934 and this came out in 1952 these artists were in their 20s and 30s in 19 you know in the 36 right so it'd be like now if we if we look back at music from the 1990s and thought this is ancient music and old these people you know it, it's not it was not these people were still around and and the depression most of them went back into day jobs coal mines sharecropping whatever it was and uh ralph renzer mike seeger john cohen ed Kahn, dick spotswood and tom haskins people like that just went down south and they asked around and they started finding john cohen told me his story about being at a drive-in restaurant in um in amarillo texas you know when they're a, a new lost city ramblers tour and they happened to look across the street and uh saw this guy you know look like eck robertson <laughs> and it was <laughs> next thing you know eck robertson it was like going to festivals guys also started taking all these people on tours like the University of Chicago, Berkeley. Uh, there's certainly Newport Folk Festival. A lot of these people started appearing. Plus, they also would, were discovering people who were like that at the same time. So you got people like Mance Lipscomb and others, Roscoe Holcomb, who were not on the anthology, but they were similar types of music. Smithsonian Folklife Festival, you look at the first maybe six or eight years of, of the festival, a good percentage of the people on the anthology who were still alive were there, like Hoyt Ming and the Pep Steppers and people. He, he, you find these people and bring them up there. Well, now we have to hear a little of Hoyt Ming and his Pep Steppers. I think it's safe to say that my guest, Jeff Place, from Smithsonian Folkways, has probably listened to the anthology of American folk music more than anyone else. You also have to understand that this is in the days before a lot of computer technology, and, and Pete Reininger and I, Pete Reininger was the audio guy who did all the you know, transfers and, and all the mastering on that record. We had an analog machine where you clean out pops and cracks in old records, way you do it is you, you you work with two seconds at a time or three seconds at a time and you erase a really small increment so it makes it so we did that for 86 songs that micro work so i i almost didn't have to listen to it again for like a few years because i could just hit a button and play from my head <laughs> i was curious after all that scrutiny and micro editing what songs from the anthology stood out for jeff place One song I, I really did like a lot, and this is uh, because of Ralph Rensler, you know, and Ralph Rensler who was involved with Clarence Ashley, but his old band had a song called Peg and All, which was about uh, industrial revolution and like, you know, people being replaced by machines. In the 
age of 18 and one. Hey, you know. In the days of 18 and one. Hey, you know. In the days of 18 and one. Pegging shoes is all I done. And me down my pegs, my pegs, my pegs, my own. It was kind of a cool song. Make 100 pair of my one. Hey, you know. Make one a hundred pair of my one, peg it all. Make one a hundred pair of my one, peg and shoes, it ain't no fun. Oh, wave my pegs, my pegs, my pegs, my own. Some shoemaker. Carter family, of course, are very, very important. One of the first two great country music groups recorded in 1927, kicked off sort of the country music industry. And they had a really nice song uh, called Engine 143. George's mother came to him with a bucket on her arm. Sing, my darling son, be careful how you run. For many a man train wreck there's lots of train wreck uh, the people need to understand that you know back in the days before you could go on your your eye your phone and see the latest news that happened five minutes ago in those days you know big giant events like a guy getting trapped in a cave or a, you know the titanic sinking or something like immediately somebody would write a song about it and, and the song would travel and that's how the news traveled so that all the, the topical songs there's a lot of great stuff from the 20s and 30s wreck of the old 97 and other songs but engine 143 certainly falls in that category the doctor said to georgie your life cannot be saved murdered up on a railroad and laid in a lonesome grave his face was covered up with blood his eyes you could not see and the very Blind Lemon Jefferson, who was a great Texas blues guy, he was probably one of the first big selling blues artists. You know, he sold a ton of copies of things and he ended up dying young, but 
uh, see, my, see that my grave is kept clean was just a really nice song. Have you ever heard a dirt belt song? Have you ever heard a dirt belt song? Have you ever heard a dirt belt song? Then you know that the poor boy didn't go. Smith finished the thing with a sort of a bang. He finished with a sort of up-tempo, happy kind of sounding song where it's a lot of misery and people getting killed and murdered and stuff to the rest of the set. He finishes off with uh, Henry Thomas, who was a curious guy. He's probably the oldest person on this record. Um, he was supposedly born in 1870. He was a a guy who hoboed around on trains and things down in Texas and all through the South and played the sort of panpipe quills along with his guitar. He did a song called Fish and Blues, which, uh, you know, has been covered by a lot of people in the modern era, but it's a, it's a fun kind of happy sounding song along with the quills. Put on the skillet, let my Mama gonna cook a little short bread. Say you've been fishing all the time. I'm gonna fish it too. I bet you life, loving wife, get more fishing you. I asked Jeff to talk about the relevance of this old music today. Why should we keep paying attention to these old recordings? Is there still an audience for this stuff? It comes in waves, you know. I think that a lot of the traditional, especially traditional American music, has really come back in the last, you know, 10 years. You know, the whole Americana thing, but like there's a whole old time music scene in Brooklyn, New York, and it's almost, you know, getting like up like it was in the early 60s again. And then it'll vanish for a while. Somebody else will find something else to be interested in. But, but you know, there's going to be the, you know, the current gatekeepers, the current people who are out there who are, uh, like Eli Smith in Brooklyn and stuff, who are just going to keep collecting stuff and making sure it's there and promoting it and putting, you know, new records out and all of that. There's all those people are there to keep publicizing this and making, you know, it's going to, it's going to hang around. At least, you know, the amount of people that study it will vary. Certainly the 60s folk music was kind of, you know, a big thing for a while, but it still has a pretty good audience. My thanks to Jeff Place from Smithsonian Folkways Records for giving us this first-hand insight into the powerful and influential anthology. In order to paint the picture of just how influential the anthology was to the folk revival in the late 50s and into the 60s, I was hoping to interview someone who was making music in that era, especially in the Greenwich Village area where these records had such an impact. That's when I ran into, well, character number three, Peter Stamfell. Peter, along with Steve Weber, founded the Holy Modal Rounders. They were influenced heavily by old-time country music, the anthology of American folk music, and psychedelic drugs. The Rounders released their first self-titled record in 1964. They followed that up with the Holy Modal Rounders 2 in 1965. 
Both of these recordings brought the past to the present by imagining what these old musicians would have sounded like if they were exposed to the folk, pop, and rock music of the 1960s. Peter Stamfeld continues to fiddle and write songs in New York City to this day at the age of 85. He was kind enough to contribute a few thoughts on how the anthology of American folk music affected the musicians of that era. The first time I heard the Harry Smith anthology was October of 1959 in a coffee house called the uh, Cafe East, which was located uh, in the uh, Lower East. I had not yet called the East Village, which was basically a real estate, you know, a scam phrase to, as an excuse to charge more money for rents. It was volume three. I was aware of old time music because of the Nelocity Ramblers and uh, made me quite first in 1958, the year previous. That made me aware that um, the stuff that came before Bluegrass was more interesting because much more varied. Bluegrass kind of like homogenized the old timey sound and was the result of um, greater chops musical chops that were the result of the commercialization of company music, which by the time Bluegrass was around was approaching its 20th year. A lot of people were able to like be full musicians and they got, you know, to have better chops. I wish I was a mole in the ground. Yes, I wish I was a mole in the ground. As a mole in the ground, I'd root that mountain down, and I wish I was a mole in the ground. I was shocked and amazed and awed by the incredible variety of the music. I only heard of Volume 3, which for some reason was the, the favorite one. That was the one that, you know, everyone listened to. Uh, in fact, I was told by a couple people that volume two wasn't very good. Can you imagine? Same month, October 1959, was when I first took peyote. Took like a nice, nice heavy seven-button dose, and I only realized recently that um, the insights I got from the anthology and peyote were basically the same one, which is to say, the world was much, much, much more strange and much, much, much more mysterious than I had previously believed. Like suddenly, you know, like the, the universe in, in beginning to approach its true state, as I perceived it, was made manifest by the by drugs and music. <laughs> Let's try it. I'll start with Uncle Bunt Stevens from the anthology and morph into the holy modal rounders playing the same song. It's Sail Away Ladies. Thank you. 
sail away, give the old one to my son. Sail away, lady, sail away. Don't you rock on my dighty o don't you rock on my dighty o don't you rock on my dighty o don't you rock on my dighty o. But the idea of like what those people would do when exposed to rock and roll, I thought, that, now that is interesting. That. Is something worth looking into? That's something to try out, as opposed to like sounding like an old record. So that that was that was a real game-changing moment for me. I asked Peter if he ever met Harry Smith, the guy whose record collection turned into the anthology of American folk music. I actually met him mm. around sixty-three or four. I was in the East Side, and um, said, hey, there's Harry Smith, and. My picture of Harry Smith, now, I wasn't aware of Harrison Ford, right? But in my mind's eye, Harry Smith was a Harrison Ford-looking person. You know, like, that was that was my, you know, my picture. And so I look over, and here's the most disheveled, bowery bum-looking person. You know, like, like as disheveled a bowery bum person as I'd ever seen. He's, like, small and stooped and scraggly and shaggy hairdresser and absolutely filthy rags with his bent glasses fixed in the middle with tape and, and this 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 you know, like scroungy beard. <laughs> he couldn't have possibly looked less like Harry Smith as far as I was concerned. That 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 really threw me for a loop because of, you know I talk about cognitive dissonance. <laughs> A Newsweek writer referred to the anthology as the roots of the roots of rock and roll, which is absolutely true. It's simply the best single go-to source of traditional folk music uh, that that exists. If you're interested in like like one-stop shopping, that's where to shop. Better get ready for judgment. Oh, better get ready for judgment morning. You better get ready for judgment. My God is coming down. Well, you better get ready for judgment. Oh, you better get ready for judgment morning. You better get ready for judgment. My God is coming down. Amen. It's true that musicians like Prince Albert Hunt's Texas Ramblers, J.P. Nessler, and Richard Rabbit Brown are not household names. It's also true the music found on the Anthology of American Folk Music continues to permeate the music we hear to this day. All because an eccentric record collector met an eccentric record producer in the 1950s and musicians for decades continued to be intrigued. Again, my thanks to fiddler and songwriter Peter Stampville and Jeff Place at Smithsonian Folkways Records for agreeing to be interviewed for the podcast.
No Root, No Fruit is written, produced, and hosted by me, Matt Watroba. I absolutely love researching and putting these shows together, but as you can imagine, it's quite a bit of work. Your support is needed to keep these shows coming your way. Please check out the website, norootnofruit.com, to leave comments, read more about the albums and the artists, follow links to the recordings mentioned, and, most importantly, make a donation. If just a small portion of you do that, we might be able to keep this ad-free. Thanks so much for listening.